What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in. Asian Bitches Down Under, a podcast about sharing information and perspectives from the Asian diasporas in society and culture. We encourage you to subscribe to our show via Apple, Google, or Spotify. If you have enjoyed our episodes, please support us by giving us a five star rating and get your friends on board to listen to us. Finally, we would love you to support this podcast by donating to our Buy Me a Coffee program. Your wonderful support and donations will help us to continue creating the platform for diversity and inclusivity. Make sure you check out the episode show notes for any collaborations we're working with to promote. Thanks again, and we hope you will enjoy today's episode. Okay, so let's start. I'm here today. Um, <clears throat> forgot to do my introduction. And、um, this is Helen from Asian Bitches Down Under, and I have here today Shane and Marina from Amplify Bookstore.、Uh, we finally meet both the ladies today. We've been interacting、uh, a little while on Instagram before, and we know the amazing jobs that you do to promote. The、um, writers of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And firstly,、um, I would like、uh, you can do a bit of introduction yourself. You know, let us know about your background, maybe about your family, your childhood, your experience, and also how did you two meet?、Uh, let's start with Shane.、Uh, did I pronounce your name right? Because I'm so worried that I don't pronounce people's name right. <laughs>、um, it's Shren. Like, Shren. yeah, Shren. Yeah. So I. I'm from Singapore. I was born and raised there, and I moved here when I was about sixteen, I think, for uni.、Um, and I've been here ever since. I and、um, yeah, Marina and I met、um, doing Myriad Magazine, which is the uni of Melbourne's POC magazine, and they run it every year. And we just so happened to have worked on it together,、um, and like we met. At like a group meeting, and I was like, "I'm from Singapore." And Marina came up to me after being like, "I lived in Singapore," <laughs>、um, and that was how we met. Marina, were you born in Singapore, or you you spent some time there? Um, yeah, no, I was born and raised there. Um, I moved to Australia after I graduated high school. Um, but I'm Australian. My dad's white Australian, and my mom's Japanese.、Mm. And, and、um, what, what did you guys both study at uni, Melbourne Uni? Yeah, so we were both studying at uni. Okay.、Um, what yeah, were we your majors? During, that was during undergrad, and so I was doing、um, English literature and psychology, and Trin was doing.、Um, <laughs> I I majored in communications and screen and cultural studies,、um, but yeah, we both recently graduated from the Masters of Publishing and Communications. Like wow, amazing. Brilliant, yeah. I'd love to hear more about that later on in the interview. Um, so how did you two came about um establishing Amplify Bookstore? Like how the idea came to life, and why the name Amplify? Um, so during undergrad, because I studied um English, I sort of realized a lot of my essays had started just leaning towards um race and sort of the way that it was portrayed or、mm-hmm. not um in a lot of the books that we were studying. Um, so it was something that I was quite interested in in like. An academic sense as well, I guess.、Um, and then we started our masters at the start of twenty twenty.、Um, had another opportunity to do a bit of a deep dive, but this time, this time more from the publishing industry perspective. And that's、uh, a lot of what you'll see on the Why Amplify page on our website.、Mm-hmm. And then 
everything happened in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement and Sean and I were kind of fiddling around in the height of Melbourne lockdowns, feeling bad and not knowing what to do. And I guess stumbled upon an idea of something that we felt like we might be able to do to make some sort of tangible difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And we kind of just girl bossed it until it happened. Yeah, I think it's really amazing because Justin and I have talked about how lack of representation of the writers of Black, Indigenous and people of colour's exposure in predominantly like white bookstores, like, you know, the mainstream demics, um, mm. now it's like QBD, what else, Booktopia, the major ones in Australia. We don't really see a lot of bookstores that really sent... I wouldn't say center, but it's just very limited exposure. Yeah. So when we, when I saw your Instagram, I'm like, oh, okay, this is interesting. You know, we finally have a bookstore that is really opening the eyes to, you know, the major communities to see that, you know, they don't have, they're very, they essentially have very limited exposure. Yeah. That, that's, brilliant work that what you're doing um speaking of the journey of establishing Amplify bookstore did you had any obstacles did you think that it was um hard to establish in bookstores who would like to start <laughs> um well to begin with neither of us actually have any retail or books <laughs> or had <laughs> any retail or book selling experience so that was a whole learning curve because we really just learned it all on the fly including like a website, which like we've done personally, but it's very different to have like a shop running a store, doing accounting, mm-hmm. <laughs> book buying, <laughs> like all of the departments, but it's just the two of us. Um, so that was a challenge. And then with like our list, because we basically just have to comb through all of the books that are coming out every month to pick which ones we'll sell. Um, and we literally do just sell everything that we can. So anything that's by a person of colour. And if you consider that and then the size of how many books we sell um, and the fact that Penguin alone puts out about 500 books every month, that's how few there are. That's insane, yeah. Yeah. So we thought, someone told us, I can't remember anymore, that we might be able to get some help with sort of whittling down what we would be able to take. Mm -hmm. Um, But the publishers don't have that data. So we don't get a lot of help on that front. And we also had some incredibly uncomfortable conversations with representatives from different publishing houses when we were trying to explain to them the sort ethos and what we would take mm. um, because of course we've spoken to 99% only white people mm. um, so that's always a fun challenge yeah I'm so interested in because like you guys must have had many many long hours of conversations about how to change um, thinking like how do I change the structural injustices like whether in you know people have this you know this very typical conversation do I change it within the system or outside of the system um did either of you ever entertain any um entertain any idea any like any thought of going to work for a publishing house and trying to change it within the system it's a good question um well Yes, I think we both entered the publishing and communications masters with the intention of working in publishing. Mm. But, you know, where we were at in 2020, it just felt a lot easier to open a bookstore rather than start 
like a publishing house or you know find a job in the publishing industry which we know is particularly closed off to newcomers Mm. Um, it's a really hard industry to get into and even now like we've graduated and we've been running the store for like over a year and like people in the industry know us and they know of us but even then like it's really hard for either of us to get our foot in the door so yeah the like the whole system's really hard to get into getting a job in publishing is like notoriously difficult it's you know an industry where you're underpaid and overworked all the time and we've heard stories of other FNPOCs who exist within and work within the publishing sphere and the kind of like racism that they face day to day and the kind of like microaggressions that they face a lot of times it's like is it worth it trying to get in and when you do um we're all gonna start out in a junior position so it's Mm. not like we're gonna have the capacity to say something and not be like fearful of our jobs or our reputation in the industry yeah, that's the reality, isn't it? That's why I feel like the last two years, I guess pandemics had, the, the pandemic actually impacted a lot of people and also brought in a lot of um, people's ambition to just go ahead. And um, in the past two years, I've seen a couple of um, new magazines, um, speaking of like publishing industry, like a lot of uh, Black and Indigenous people of colours their own publishing arenas, um, either online or on paper. Yeah, that that's a good, that that's kind of like a great trend for you know us as well. We're seeing different kind of exposures through different media. Um, uh, interview with a lot of Asians. This is the question that I usually will ask: Is that um, how your parents feel about your career choices? <laughs> that had to say, are they supportive or what? what did I have high expectations? What do you think? Well, I have a white dad, so that helps. <laughs> he <laughs> is blindly proud of what I do, generally. Um, what about Shen? Did you want my to... My mum is around. Um, <laughs> all right. But she's also, I think, generally proud of me, just maybe less vocal. Um, I don't think my parents understand what I do, but I've been very um lucky in the sense that they've never pushed me to do something that I didn't want to do mm-hmm. um they've always been okay with me pursuing the arts and pursuing anything that isn't like law or med uh, or engineering which is you know really nice of them I guess mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I do appreciate it but um on the other hand like I know that they don't understand what I do and they don't understand like why Amplify is important and they don't necessarily see it as a job. Like my parents called it, my mom was like, oh, if you don't make any money, why do you still do it then? And I was like, we're yield. No one makes money within the first year. Yeah. Mm. Like yeah. basic, basic economics, business, like knowledge. Like everyone knows people don't make money within like five years at the very minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, And my dad described it as like a part-time job where you learn how to do things. Like it's just like, oh, she's just doing this for experience. Think of it like a part-time job. That's like, I think like with the understanding side of things as well, um, like correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like both of our parents um, come from, I guess, like a majority background where like my mom's from Japan, which is notoriously very like monoethnic and then like, Chinese Singaporeans are the dominant sort of like class class like group in Singapore as well 
So I think like sort of having that complexity being our parents' backgrounds makes it maybe a little harder to necessarily understand some of what mm. we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And did you both grow up reading? Were you very voracious readers as children? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, like I, I think for me it really, um, for me the shock of realising everything I had ever consumed as a as a human being up until the age of like 25 um, was from a white person. This happened only a few years ago. When did this moment happen for you guys? Like 2020. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I So I like was a really big reader as a kid and then I came to uni and just fell out of it because like time and stuff. Like uni just makes everyone stop reading. I feel like that's a universal <laughs> experience for a lot of people. So I stopped reading and then I started my master's and I was like, well... I can't go into class saying that I haven't read in like six years or like four years, basically. Um, So I forced myself to start reading again. And it was, you know, around the time when like a lot of people were talking about representation and literature and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, as a film major, the conversation of representation on film has been really big. And it was something that I paid attention to, but not in books because I just haven't been reading as much but then when I did start reading and I was like oh I'll go and look for a book that has like a POC in it and I thought I bought a book with that was written by an Asian author because her last name was like Lim. <laughs> the last name was Lim and I was like Lim is Asian I grew mm-hmm. up in Singapore Lim is Chinese I mm-hmm. yeah and um turns out it was a pseudonym and she wasn't Asian <laughs> and I felt <laughs> swindled oh my gosh and I was like this is terrible and then it was around the time where you know it was like Shen Yon style bookstore and I was like yes <laughs> oh my god was it, it was, a good was it a good was that a good book no oh. <laughs> Yeah, it was just really disappointing. I mean, after I found out she wasn't Asian, I was like, well, I have no interest in reading this anymore. But it was also, it's kind of like The Expanse, like the show The, the Expanse. It was kind of set in space and stuff. And mm-hmm. um, Sci-fi, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Marina? I think I came to it maybe a little before Schwen did, um, if only because of what I was studying. And then when we were working on the magazine together at uni, so that was 2019 was it mm-hmm. I think um third year uni and I was doing I don't know I was just having like a crisis <laughs> I just started having an identity crisis that I'd been having for like all my life being mixed and it really just came to a head in about 2019 and I was trying to figure things out and then I was working on this oh no that's what started I was working on this magazine but I spent like six months debating if I was even allowed to apply because you had to be a person of colour to work on it. Mm. And I have never once been treated as a white person, except for maybe sometimes in Japan. But even there, they usually realise I'm mixed pretty quick. But I was like, I am also white, so I don't count. And then it took a long time of sort of like thinking about that, dealing with it, asking my friends, having some of them say, yeah, no, you don't count. Then realising that same friend has referred to me as the Asian friend multiple times throughout my life, that that was probably not true. Applied for it was let in, um, felt very validated and then was like seeking out a lot of, I don't know, I've had like, it sort of like awakened me, I guess, to sort of like validate myself and my identity and experiences. And I went just deep diving looking for books um, about people like me. And I ended up writing like a book list, like a reading list for the mag um, and things like that. And yeah, it's just kind of, been with me ever since and now all my favorite books are 
almost exclusively by by or about mixed race people mm. and i'm mm. not sorry mm. nor should you have to be nor should you at all yeah yeah definitely um so but i also grew up playing the violin and then your book came out at the end of 2020 and i was like this is fantastic <laughs> Well, wow, that's wonderful. Yeah. So speaking of the books, um, do you have a favorite book when you were growing up? And also, um, this has got to be two questions. Um, your favorite book when you were growing up and what's your favorite book as an adult or maybe now? <laughs> My favorite book growing up was uh, particularly embarrassing in the current context. And I don't feel like I should give her any more of a platform. Um, <laughs> but Is it Harry Potter? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I was actually never a Harry Potter kid. So I found out very recently that my dad didn't like that. My dad didn't like like witches and wizardry stories. So he never let us read Harry Potter as a kid. So I didn't grow up reading Harry Potter and neither did my older sister. But my younger sister got really into it towards the end of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's the only one who's a Harry Potter kid. And all of us were like, never read the books. I've never seen a singular Harry Potter film. And I've come this far in my life and I will keep doing it. <laughs> I love it. Good on I you. I like die, never seen it or read Harry Potter. Like, that's my... That's but... your form of protest. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh, my favourite book growing up was a book that has been translated into a tv adapted, sorry, into a TV series that's really bad. And it's about people who wear dark clothes and have and do like little marks on their hands and their superpowers and they hunt mm. other things yeah we're trying oh. to figure it out <laughs> yeah i don't know I feel like some some members of the audience might be able to figure it out but it was like there was incest that would that mm. should that should do it there was really like incest came out like three times and i was 10 like so been adapted into a film with lily collins and they abandoned yeah. the film franchise oh really they abandoned the film franchise, but the guy who played Jace was like perfect in like the original film and not like the other one. The other one, I was like, you're not, you don't have the vibe. Sorry, babes. <laughs> but um, yeah, loved it growing up. Had the whole series, had like the prequel. And then I read a bit of the series that came after and I was at that point 16 and realized it was crap. Mm. And I'm, I'm guessing it's written by a female white writer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe some of our listeners will have. Yeah, I still. Yeah. I'm still going to figure it out. out. Yeah. I'll Google it later. Um, what about what about as a, an adult, Siobhan? Mm. Recently. Uh, yeah, I think I um, I really like. I think the ones that stood out to me recently that I've read is um, Daily Fantis. Love it. One of my top books of last year. Um, mm-hmm. And Legendborn and This Poison Heart. I think I'm very excited for all of their sequels and they're all coming out this year and I cannot wait. Amazing. How about you, Marina? Um, I pretty much read anything I could get my hands on <laughs> growing up. I was an only child, so I had a lot of time to myself <laughs> to just sit. Um, um, I really like, I read through definitely like all the Jacqueline Wilson books. I was probably reading a little too advanced for my age, learned about periods in a book when I was like, nine and was very confused um, like I got on to like teen romances when I was definitely not a teen and I don't know that I should have done that but I liked them so I did um there was like a series about teen about sisters who found out they were witches when they were in high school it was great um read that um 
I don't know. And then towards the end of high school, I read The Bell Jar and I actually reread. That's probably one of the only books I've reread. It's a very uh, classic, sad, teenage favourite, mm, I think. Mm, <laughs> mm. And as an adult, do you have any specific favourite book at the moment? Um, as an adult, so when I started my like reading of mixed books rampage a couple of years ago, I found some books that have really, I guess, stuck with me, if only because they were the first things I ever read that had any families that look like mine. Um, so Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng, so uh, mm-hmm. I've got mixed opinions on her more recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, my head. <laughs> but that was the first book. She's also not mixed, but like that was the first book I ever read where like the characters were mixed and it like mattered in a tangible way, but it also yeah. wasn't like in a gross fetishizing, fetishizing way. But yeah, that made me feel very sort of like validated. Um, and then... Darius the Great by Adib Garam is a YA contemporary. Um, it's a companion series. So the first one is like just a family sort of contemporary and then the second one's got a bit of romance. But Darius is gay and he's like super down with that, like super okay with it. His family knows and stuff. Um, and his dad, he his dad has depression and he has depression. They're both on meds. Then they go to, in the first one, they go to Iran to visit his mom's family because his mom's Iranian and his dad's like white American. It's a whole thing, but it's like one of the only times it's, it reminded me a lot of my family, even though I'm in no way, shape or form Iranian, um, but like he actually went to see his family and there was like a bit of a cultural sort of barrier and like language barrier between his family members who did speak, who spoke Persian and he doesn't speak any and sort of that and like dealing with his mental health and making a friend and feeling like in between worlds and outcast, um, I think resonates, but resonated a lot with me and I think would with like most mixed people, to be honest. Um, Oh, and then my last favourite one from then <laughs> is Selfish by Kemi Dornbomo, which is sort of like a YA new adult crossover section um, about a girl who's dealing with social anxiety and like a terrible home situation. And it's by a Japanese-American mixed author. Um, and so are her characters. And it like, again, plays like a tangible role that they're mixed. And that was great to read. And then <laughs> I'm just kidding, keep going. Um, <laughs> And then through the store, I've had a chance to read Pizza Girl, which gave me very Lonely Girl vibes, actually, like a few months later, but much shorter. <laughs> um, and then Not Everything Has to Be Sad. So like the, all the books by Talia Hibbert and like, what is it? Get a Life? Nope. Actor Age Eve Brown was my favourite in that like romance series. And They Call Us Enemy is a great graphic novel by George Takei or written by George Takei about his childhood uh, um, when his family was interned in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, yeah. What a great I bunch of a lot. <laughs> yeah, great <laughs> bunch of books. We're gonna definitely um, have, make a list. I'm wondering, um, ladies, when you do acquire books for Amplify, um, what kind of what's the most focal lens that you put through in deciding which books to include? Um, we include most. 99% of books by people of colour in the catalogues we would include. Um, sometimes we do find ourselves having to make that like executive decision of this book would not, like having the book and not having the book is the same because it like we have a pretty clear understanding of our audience at the store and so sometimes they're just certain books that we know wouldn't really suit the store. Right. And- the mm. vibes of the audience and like the people who buy from us like they're not gonna buy it sometimes it's just a matter of like politics and 
the book's politics does not align with our politics. And whilst we don't always let that come into play when we're thinking about the books that we stock, sometimes it's really obvious things like if a turf. That was a, yeah, that was a really turf. aggressively turfy book. Yeah. A while ago. Um, uh, so like we didn't include that one. And then. So like we try to basically just not have anything that's like actively including narratives that are harmful towards different identities mm -hmm. yeah and mm. um I think we do have like like we do have a policy of like if the author is problematic we will stop the book but we won't like and okay like if it's a problematic author who's really popular and everyone will read a book anyways we'll stock it but we won't promote it is kind of the way that we've gone about mm. you know they're not like, like some of them are school texts and things like that as well yeah. yeah and it's not like the narrative within the book that is you know harmful and it's not like a book that particularly celebrates like or pushes a narrative that is false or doesn't align with ours and our audience's politics but it's probably the author has said some nasty things in the past um and you know but his books are still important or like their books are still important within the dialogue of BIPOC books. You know, these are celebrated authors, authors that everyone knows and reads. So it's kind of like we do have to make these decisions sometimes, but it's not necessarily something that we make all the time. Most of the time it's like person's a PLC, check it in, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, that's understandable. Yeah. Oh, my next question is that um, apart from books that's written in English as a first language. Um, do you have any favorite books that's translated from another language that's written by people of color? I know that you stock some of the books that's translated from another language. So do you have any specific recommendations? Um, that's a correct question. I think I do actually mostly read. <laughs> Um, just straight English books, mm. but I've been trying to read more Japanese literature. Um, and what was it? The Memory Police was a very interesting, mm. um, well, it's a sort of like dystopian sci-fi speculative type thing. It's quite famous. Um, I really want to get to When the Coffee Gets Cold, also a Japanese author. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great book. Yeah. So many. I think um, it's exactly up my alley. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel, Marina, about in the last three, four years, suddenly like Japanese and uh, Japanese authors are becoming like really, really widely read by Western readers? How does that make you feel? Are you just like completely celebrating that, or? Um, I think it's really interesting <laughs> um, because it's kind of come off the back of like when I was little. I guess like being Japanese wasn't cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people just made fun of anime and stuff like that. Like no one was appreciating it at all. Whereas like that's completely shifted in the last decade or so where like people are actually like quite loud and proud about enjoying things like anime and manga, manga and they've like quite made into the mainstream, mm. which I think has helped. And that's good. I think there's some fetishizy yuckiness around, which is less good, mm. <laughs> mm. but I personally love it. It makes it much more accessible for me because I can't read adult books in Japanese. So this is like the only way I can access them. Um, like I can watch the movies, but uh, books not so much. 
Um, so it's really helpful to me because like, even if it's in English, I can catch like, there's so cultural nuances and things that come across that I like do mm-hmm. actually like relate to and understand. Um, but there's, I don't know, I feel like there's, they're getting a bit monolithic in sort of the sense that a lot of the books coming out tend to be quite similar in mm-hmm. sort of genre and style. And it yeah. might be that there's sort of a limited few um, translators going around and some of the translations honestly haven't been great mm, <laughs> um, right. because they're often translated. They're translated by people who speak Japanese as a second language, which I mean like big props because I honestly couldn't do it. But there's some things that I can sort of like read it and I know it's been lost in translation and I, mm. but I can't figure out what it was initially meant to be. Um, mm. So I think there's still like more of a conversation to be had around translations and sort of like cultural stuff around that. But overall, it's fun because being Japanese is cool now, so it's great for me. But um, being Japanese also comes with a level of privilege in the um, like wider context of being a person of color. So a bit wary that mm. we're starting to sort of dominate. And then people are like, I've read Substance so Watch and they've like only read Japanese and Korean translations. So. Mm. I absolutely agree with the loss in translation part of what Marina said, um, because Jess knows that uh, my favorite author, the Japanese author that I read since I was like 16, is um, Haruki Murakimi. And I read, I first, I read his work in Chinese, which was translated by this Chinese translator. And then later I start reading his work in English and somehow if I read the Chinese translation and the English translation, they just don't feel the same. It's just like, oh, there's just a bit of differences. I can't feel the sentiment from the English translation. It's just there's something that's lost. Yeah, that's that's what you're saying as well. That's yeah, there's like a tonal issue. I think sometimes mm. like a lot of the time I find with Japanese translations that the sentence structure gets very sort of like choppy and mm. it feels, a lot of the writing starts to feel very sort of direct and to the point, which is like I do speak Japanese and so like I know the language and it's not like that. It's just very different to the way that we express ourselves in English. And I think it's hard to capture that, especially if you maybe if you haven't necessarily grown up with it. Mm. Mm. And Shen, your you your sorry, your favorite translator book. Do you have any? Um, I will admit I don't read a lot of translated text, just because I particularly mostly read genre fiction mm-hmm. um and that's not really big in the translation market mm. so um a lot of the stuff i read is just like english books but this is hard because the one that i <laughs> did read that i did remember reading and particularly stood out to me is by a guy who is not great so can't say name <laughs> can't 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 promote um especially after like Someone did like call us out recently and I was like, why do you suck his books? And I was like, Chinese man. <laughs> He's Chinese. I'm sorry. Um, but in the same vein, I think I did read Disaster Tourist, and that was one of the first translated texts, and also the um one of the first books by POC that I've read. I read The Memory Police and then I read The Disaster Tourist, and that's like an eco-fiction sort of inner world where we use we make disasters into tourism spots what <laughs> happen you know kind of situation um that's a korean translated text um i've read bullet train that's being adapted into a movie um it's japanese translated but apparently the entire movie's white so quite- <laughs> <laughs> gosh um but yeah i think um i've read like chinese translations before and they've been 
like as someone who's not entirely fluent in Chinese, it's quite it's nice when the translation is good. Um, so like I've read good sci-fi that has good translation, particularly because the guy who translated it was a like sci-fi writer himself. Mm. So like the way he did it was good, and like the translation sort of fits the story, flows well. You don't feel like you've lost anything in the translation. Although I did like read articles that said that he moved things around because mm-hmm. it didn't make sense if it wasn't moved around in English or something like that. Like mm-hmm. he had to like shift things around because English readers wouldn't have gotten it um, mm-hmm. in the same way as like Chinese readers would. But yeah, like I've had the same translation, iffy translation problems when I read like Jin Yong, The Legends of Kondo, which is like China's Lord of the Rings. And I was like, I'll read it. I like Lord of the Rings and my dad told me that he read it as a kid um but he read obviously he read the Chinese version because it's only just been translated into English um and I tried and I tried so hard but the translation was so weird um <laughs> like they were really trying to play into the like fantasy aspect of it so things would be called like peach lane and you know like in Chinese like they're like it's like the direct translation is like oh it's like someone's name was like peach something like snowy peach and I was like <laughs> I know that the name in Chinese would have directly translated to snowy peach but like why would you the names that were translatable they were translated directly so you'd get these like really weird character names and then the names that weren't being able like that couldn't be translated they would just leave it as Chinese so it was like really weird as a reading experience and I don't know why they part- like chose to do that in particular with that title but it was just like very weird and I was like this is not up my alley at all I am very confused as someone who speaks enough Chinese to understand when something's a bit wrong yeah, it's like there's enough translation work coming out now that more people are paying attention to it and reading it yeah but then some for whatever reason a lot of the people behind the books <laughs> don't seem to be putting necessarily as much effort into some of these books or like be appreciating the extent of like like the actual importance of translation which i'm sure like translators are also upset about um yeah but there's also been like a lot of sort of bilingual books well not a lot but like there's been a handful <laughs> of bilingual or like english books that've had another language like sort of sprinkled in i was reading a memoir recently i was reading it's called speak okinawa and it was by um a mixed japanese american girl a woman um but she like doesn't speak japanese and started learning it quite late in life i think but um towards especially towards the end she starts trying to speak to her mother someone tries starts trying to speak to someone in japanese and it's just wrong <laughs> um like it was like num like the number was wrong and i was like if you learn japanese in high school you can catch that yeah um, right uh. which like no hate to the author on this one but because there's so many people that have to look through a book before it comes out so i just like i wonder how much thought necessary and care is going into some of them mm. Mm. i'm going to jump into another um topic now uh speaking of films and television i'll kind of like to know your thoughts about books and novels that's made into movie and television you know as we know that oscar this year the best international film was won by uh, japanese production driving my car and which was an adaptation of haruki murakami's work men without women 
and in which driving my car is one of the short stories in the book and there has been many books that adapted into television dramas or movies like mostly in us and uk i don't think i remember seeing any in australia yet the you know for example like the hate you give uh by ng thomas um what else uh marina mentioned celestine's you know she, her works of the little fires everywhere and much more earlier work by Kazuo Ishigoro, you know, The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, which doesn't really center on any culture, but it's very white works. Anyway, um, do you think promoting uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color literacy's uh, work also improves the exposure of their film productions, like in performance art industry, such as film and theater? I mean, if nothing else, it massively helps to give the book a second life. Um, because like it'll come out with the film tie and cover and all of that and like it'll mm. have a whole new run of promotion and like book sales do show that basically everything that gets adapted like the book sales will increase even if it was published like 10 20 years before that mm. um definitely a conversation to be had around like the teams behind it mm -hmm. um like probably like in the case of never let me go um, but I'd say like some of the really big stuff like Crazy Rich Asians um, and The Hate You Give where sort of like the character's race and culture has tied directly into the book when they've been like issue books slash movies um, I tend to take a lot of care with what they're doing and bring in bring the story to a wider audience because like not everyone's a book person it is what it is <laughs> so like I think that's promising mm. but what about you, Shen? Do you have anything to say? <laughs> um, no, I think yeah, I think that like especially if you're tr adapting, you know, stories that are culturally that are steeped in culture, you should be a little bit more careful in the kind of way that you wish to portray it on screen. You know, like we mentioned before, Bulletproof, uh, sorry, Bullet Train being like a Japanese book with Japanese characters set on a bullet train in japan shouldn't have white people playing the main characters like that's it you know well, that it's is diverse it's also got black people it's just not got any asians except for the yakuza which is like um, according to the trailer sorry but sorry according to the trailer but you know like only portraying in that situation like only portraying the yakuza or like the bad guys as poc is problematic and shouldn't have happened in the first place but i like i mean i, I do look forward to the adaptations of some of the books and sandra bullock so everyone's gonna watch it which yeah, one sandra opinions. bullock oh okay brad pitt and sandra bullock yeah. and a bunch of big names yeah 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 it's like you don't need them also there are big name asian actors at this point like like if necessary, throw Simu Liu in it. <laughs> he just got out of Marvel, you know, like different kind of Asian, but like, what can we ask from Hollywood at this point? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I do. I don't know. I, I look forward to adaptations. I like adaptations because I get to say that I read the book first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm annoying like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's. I think it's just nice to see how they've, translated text into a film because there's a lot in film that can and can't that you can and can't do in a book um mm -hmm. and so like I know the popular is getting adapted into a series and I'm very excited about that because mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite books of mm -hmm. yeah as well 
Wow, that's amazing. Yeah.、Uh, my final question is that what do you think of the future of the paper books? Like your thoughts about e-books and also maybe the sustainability of paper books. You know, I think in the past maybe five years for me, I've always been battling to think that、um, should I trend,、uh, kind of change my way of reading, but I still prefer the. The existence of books, like my husband and my kids, are starting to read Kindles already. But for me, I always start,、uh, still prefer to purchase a book from a bookstore and then you know have the tangible thing in front of me to read it because I can't read stuffs on electronic device for a very long time. Whereas books, I can just finish the book for you know within a day. Yeah, what do you think of that? Okay, I went through Kindle phase. I will admit. I when Kindles first came out, my dad was like, "Shwen, look, Kindles!" And this was when Amazon was doing the classic Amazon thing of selling eBooks at ninety nine cents. So、mm. it made a lot of sense for me to get a Kindle and buy these like dollar box、um, that I read in a day, and it was great. But then I, you know, like I, I didn't end up buying a lot of the books, like paper, like the like in hard. Tangible copies, hard copies of a book, and as an adult, like I remembered the books that I read as an ebook, and I was like, I wish I had that in like a hard cover or a hard copy, so I could pass it down to like my cousins or other little kids that run in my family who might want to read a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> the only book in my childhood that is, you know, worthy of being passed down, in my opinion.、Um, <laughs> You know, like I understand the like terribleness of cutting down trees to make books, and I know that like Penguin Classics are made out of recycled paper, and a lot of the industry is trying to cut down on paper and doing. They're like moving towards becoming more sustainable, but at the same time, there are worse ways to use paper. There are worse reasons <laughs> to cut down trees, and making books that people enjoy is not one of the reasons that are bad to cut trees down. Cutting down trees. Bad cutting down trees to create a cultural product that a lot of people will enjoy and bring value to their lives, marginally good. Also, the idea of us having an individual carbon footprint is made up, anyways, and is made up by the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry to make us feel bad about what we do, even though they contribute most to climate change. So, if you enjoy reading hard copy books. Go ahead and enjoy your hard copy books because your single book is not going to ruin the planet. Burning fossil fuels and coal is very well said. Yeah, Maria, <laughs> it's a place for both. Is <laughs> what I will say because <laughs> I like people really underestimate sort of the value of books as a cultural artifact. I think and like as as an object, like people put like literally behind Chuan, like you can put them on display if nothing else. They'll sit there and be pretty. You can reread. It feels different. I don't know how psychological it is, but it feels different, you know, to be able to like read dogma, dog, dog ear, and like highlight a book, than sort of like saving it on whatever device you're reading it on. And like different people have different preferences, which is totally fair. But also, it is still valuable, I reckon, to have ebooks and audio books and things like that because it makes it much more accessible for people who have a hard time reading or getting、yeah. their hands on physical books. Like if you're like remote or overseas or something. Um, and like I know, my grandpa has recently or semi-recently been given、um, a Kindle type 
thing. And like, you can change the size of the text, which is, you know, very helpful for people yeah. who can't necessarily see minuscule font, especially on classic books. Why is the text so small? Like, oh, yeah. I'm 23. I shouldn't be having to squint. Um, <laughs> I'm 23 and short-sighted and I still can't see it. It's, and, like, um, and, you know, people with things like dyslexia or anything else where it just makes it sort of harder to read and you can change the font and things like that to make it more accessible. I think it's really valuable. Um, but I yeah, yeah. Do generally prefer a physical book as well. <laughs> Value um, in an I do know and stuff, but yeah. you know, if you like your hard copy books that are made out of paper, like just enjoy your yeah. hard copy books made out of paper. If you feel really bad about it, put it in the compost after. It's brown. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah that's a great idea. That every is such book a great doesn't idea. have to be new as well. Like you can yeah, buy exactly. secondhand as well. Like you can give an old book a second life, and that's still like much more circular and sustainable. And even if your book cover is completely destroyed, ripped off, not there, the inside of the book is still there. And that's what you're actually paying to read. So, yeah. So my boyfriend and I built, by I, I mean, he built a little <laughs> community library out the front of his house. And I've been stocking it with like amplified titles, particularly there are a couple of titles that are like that um, in the beginning when we didn't know, didn't think to sell them on secondhand section of the store, like we ripped out the covers and we've just sort of had these books around with their covers ripped and we we're like, I don't know what to do with them. We ripped the covers off to send it back to the publishers because that's what they ask you to do. And then you can keep it, but they take oh. like the cover as like proof that like the book was damaged. Mm-hmm. or like misprinted or something so they'll keep the cover as proof basically that you can't sell it um mm. but they'll then refund you for the cost of the book yeah, yeah. But, and then they'll pulp, I mean, pulp yeah, it they pulp pulp. The whole book. yeah yeah so instead of doing that we we kept it because we were like we don't want this book to go pulp and i added them to the library being like it's a community library no one cares about the commu- like the quality in terms of like how perfect the book is mm-hmm. physically in a community library is meant to be shared and passed around and stuff and I like chucked them in there and it took like a week before someone picked it up so no one gives a shit when the cover's torn <laughs> just it, the content's still there it just the cover's torn yeah, somehow yeah. someone will read it eventually <laughs> If you're yeah. really desperate, you can print out the JPEG and stick it back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How interesting. I didn't know that. Um, my final question to you ladies is what's next um, for Amplifier Books? Well, we are in the process of hopefully being involved in doing some market or a market mm-hmm. at some point so we can like meet people and mm-hmm. sell books physically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that should be nice <laughs> and reach people who aren't necessarily our immediate demographic because uh, I think our politics I guess it's not even politics but like our I guess stance can be polarizing to some people for whatever reason and we have a fun new um community type product coming Schwinn yes I assume this is going to come out like later but we've basically we're launching a pay it forward kind of program on our website and it's in support of basically we started it because um Blackfellas Blackfellow Book Club in Liz, um, in New South Wales, they were going to open a physical space in Lismore and all the donations that they got got flooded. Mm. Climate change. And it's really sad. And they were asking for donations again. And we, we, so like we sent some books, we asked them what they wanted, we sent some off and we were kind of thinking of a way to make it 
easier for other people to donate as well so like I was we were having a discussion of like how could we announce spread the word obviously that this that the book club needs donations and once is asking for donations but also you know cut the sort of like the transit cost of like you buying a book me packaging it sending it to you for you to send it off to them so instead we decided we'll just start like a pay it forward program where you pay like 32.99 which is the cost of a standard book basically like a standard c format new release is 32.99 and so you pay 32.99 and you tell us what book you want to donate or if there isn't a particular book we'll just give them the money blackfellow book club and also we're partnering with murmur library which is basically amplified but a library version mm. and they're in brunswick so and we've worked with them for a while now and they're always looking for donations and stuff. So we were like, $32.99, you can purchase the book for them and donate it or donate the money so that they can use that money to purchase a book that they want, basically. Oh, that's amazing work. We're trying to do what we can with Amplify, but ultimately to like increase the diversity in the publishing industry and have more books by authors of color published. Like it's not a two-person effort. It's a whole team effort. So we that we're also a small business and we just don't have enough money to be like wildly donating to everyone whenever we want to, unfortunately, as much as we would like to. So we're just trying to make it easier so that we can help everyone else also support others. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And like particularly working with MoMA and Blackfellow Book Club, for us, it's important as people who work and live on stolen land that we, you know, do extra for, you know, the buy in BIPOC. <laughs> Basically, um, we want to, in particular, to support them because MoMA is oh, MoMA <laughs> is black owned, and Black Power Book Club is run by two Indigenous women. So we want to support other initiatives that promote diversity in reading, diversity in publishing, diversity in the media that we consume. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we chose to work with the two of them. And as Marina said, small business, not a lot of cash flow in and out. We do. And they're both libraries. So it's yeah. free for you, for the people who want to use it as well, because the facts are the facts and books can be expensive. So, mm. Mm. Incredible works you, you're doing. And this is what we're doing on this interview as well, you know, passing your voices out onto the platforms as many to try to reach as many people as we want. And that's our final question. And thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. It's been such an honor and privilege. Are you. Both of you are extraordinary in what you do. And mm-hmm. I, um, I, I understand um, because having entered the world for a few, for a short period in the last few years, I know how challenging it can be. So I really like commend to both of you for doing what you do because it's like absolutely, like incredibly, I cannot state how important it is, the work that you guys do. And it will, and it does continue to have such a profound effect on so many people. Um, I, my hope is your hope as well that you know in the next few years um, things will have systemic shifts we will happen that we will see in the Australian publishing industry and um, get those voices out there well thank you so much thanks for having thanks, us ladies <laughs> thank you thanks so much guys okay thank you all right take bye. care bye take care bye, bye.